Thank you for listening to this audio recording from the pastoral team at Church of the Redeemer, an Anglican church in Greensboro, North Carolina. If you'd like to know more about Church of the Redeemer, its ministry, or its mission, then visit us online at RedeemerGSO.org. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. You may be seated. Good morning. Hey, before I begin my sermon, I just want to say first and foremost, thank you very much, Church of the Redeemer. Thank you for all of your prayers and support, your text messages, your voicemails, none that I responded to (laughs) while my family and I were away on sabbatical. On August 22nd, we headed out on an epic an amazing road trip across the United States. We traveled to and through 25 states, driving more than 11,000 miles from North Carolina up through New England and over to Niagara and back to the coast of North Carolina. Then we got on I-40 and headed west, all the way to New Mexico, and then we made our way back through Colorado, and then Kansas and Missouri, Bourbon Trail, Kentucky, Tennessee, and North Carolina, then South Carolina, then back to Greensboro. We have many stories to share, and there were many memories that we made together as a family. And as you can imagine, an 11,000-mile, five-member family road trip in one SUV can end in one of two ways. (laughs) You either come back stressed out, anxious, and not on good terms, or you come back rested and closer. And so we are thankful that the Lord brought us very close together during this time. So again, thank you very much for your prayers and for your support. So we are now two weeks away from Advent, which means that we are quickly coming to the end of this liturgical year. And this also means that there are two more weeks of readings from the Gospel of Luke. In our gospel reading this morning, Jesus is talking with his followers on the Mount of Olives, which was within sight of the second temple that had recently been refurbished by Herod the Great. The temple was a wonder of beauty. In fact, the rebuilding of the second temple took about 80 to 85 years or so to complete, and it included new foundation walls on which the temple was then expanded. No expense was spared. Herod had employed some of the most talented artisans in all of the known world to use the best and finest materials for the rebuilding of the temple, such as white marble that was more than 60 feet long, 12 feet high, and 12 feet wide. Blue, scarlet, and purple Babylonian tapestries made of fine linen formed a veil at the entrance, and gold and silver-plated gates and gold-plated doors throughout were installed too. When Herod constructed the temple, it was the single largest religious temple in the world at this time. One of the primary reasons Herod invested so much time and energy and expense in the rebuilding of the second temple was because he wanted to impress his royal, or to express his royal sovereignty, his power and his rule over all other rival temples and rulers and nations and cities 
and towns. The temple represented national security. It represented economic strength. It represented financial certainty and religious exceptionalism. It was an icon of human achievement. And it held the center of national and religious life and imagination. And for the people of God, it was the center of their life and world too. The temple was the place where God and humanity overlap. A place where God's people could encounter the presence of God, preparing them to become that holy presence on earth. This was a vital role in God's plan to dwell with and in and through humanity. So overcome with a sense of wonder and beauty, some of Jesus' followers began talking about the beauty of the temple, how it was adorned with beautiful stones and with the gifts dedicated to God. Because of all that the temple represented, security, safety, comfort, certainty, and exceptionalism, it became more and more difficult for God's people to distinguish God's actual presence from the earthly structure and gifts dedicated to God's presence. There's a subtle irony here that's telling in the very conversation Jesus is having with his followers. Jesus himself is a temple the very presence of God, God in flesh, in the person of Jesus Christ, is present in their midst, and yet his followers are interrogating him about signs and a timetable about when the temple, a place dedicated to the presence of God, will be destroyed. This is a difficulty God's people still face. You and I, we we still face this difficulty. It's a consequence of our forgetfulness that the holy places where we encounter the presence of God are intended to form a holy people where God's presence is revealed in and through. Now, another interesting thing about this passage that I think is worth noting is that by the time Luke puts the final touches on these verses that we heard read, the temple's destruction has already happened. Luke wrote his gospel 15 years after the destruction of the temple by the Romans in 70 AD. Which means that for Luke's readers, what Jesus says to his followers in verses 5 through 6 is more of a reflection on the temple's destruction than a prediction of it. Following? Thumbs up. So, there's a question we must ask. If all that Jesus said would happen has already happened by the time Luke writes down what Jesus said would happen, then how is this relevant for Luke's readers then and now? I mean, we might conclude, well, surely Luke wants us to know that what Jesus said came true, and that Jesus is true to Jesus' words, and so on. Yes, sure, true. 
But simply knowing that Jesus' prediction about the world being the world and ugly people being ugly people and the temple being destroyed sometime in the future, it isn't as life-changing as love your enemy. Bless those who hate you. Sell all that you have. Come follow me. Die. Those radical life-altering exhortations Jesus invites his followers to live into. So what is the Spirit saying to the church then in Luke's day and age and today? This is a question I want us all to prayerfully ask as we walk through this passage this morning. It is a question of great importance at such a time as this. In this season of our lives, Lord, what is your Spirit saying to us in this time and place? In America, in Greensboro, at Church of the Redeemer, in the here and now. So, what is the Spirit saying to the church? Let's continue. In verse 6, Jesus says, All this you are admiring so much. The time is coming when every stone in that building will end up in a heap of rubble. Now, Jesus never denies the beauty of the temple. He simply points out what his followers can see is temporary, and it will be destroyed. Days will come, Jesus warns, when the temple and all of its distinction and all of its stateliness and honor and glory will fall into ruin and decay. I wonder what Jesus' followers must have felt upon hearing this. Unease? Anxious? Upset? Angry? I mean, how would you feel? How would you respond upon hearing that the very thing or institution that represents the center of our lives will be laid to waste? So they asked him, teacher, when is this going to happen? What clue will we get that it's about to take place? And instead of giving them a sign, Jesus warns them to be careful and not led astray by others using his name. In verse 8, Jesus says, watch out, do not be fooled, for many will come in my name saying, I am he. And the time has come, don't Go after them. And after warning them of those who will come and seek to deceive the faithful, Jesus continues to speak of what has come to pass and what is already occurring in Luke's day and age. Here's my paraphrase. Verses 9 through 19. Jesus says, And when you hear of wars and revolutions, don't panic. For these things must happen first, but the end will not follow immediately. Nation will fight against nation and ruler fight against ruler over and over again. Huge earthquakes will occur in various places. There will be famines. You will think at times that the very sky is falling. But before any of this happens, they will arrest you. They will hunt you down. They will drag you to court and jail. It will go from bad to worse. Dog eat 
dogs, survival of the fittest, everyone at your throat because you carry my name. You will end up on the witness stand called to testify. So make up your mind right now not to worry about it. I will give you the words and wisdom that will reduce your accusers to stammers and stutters and gaslighting. You will even be turned in by parents and brothers and relatives and friends. Some of you will be killed. There is no telling who will hate you because of me. Even so, every detail of your body and soul, even the hairs on your head, is in my care. Nothing of you will be lost. Stay with it. That is what is required. Stay with it to the end. Remain faithful. You will not be sorry. You will gain your life. Or as some translations read, you will gain your souls. In other words, you will be saved. Luke's world is a world where Rome had conquered. Roman soldiers had already laid to ruin the temple and the city. Thousands of people murdered and taken captive. Houses and shops burned to the ground. Like the colorful leaves that cover the curbsides of our neighborhoods, the glory of Jerusalem, the temple in all of its national, economic, and religious splendor is laying in waste. And staring directly in the face of this chaos and all the fallout that lies in front of him, Luke remembers the promising words of the Savior. That despite the destruction and chaos, resurrection is near. That in the midst of the surrounding devastations of their world, God's faithfulness endures. That amid their great pain and suffering, it is in their patience that Jesus' followers will be saved. For Luke and his readers, this story is not about the end times. It is not about the end of the world. It is a story of the here and the now. A story about our lives today here at Redeemer as much as it is about the lives of those in Luke's day and age. In the West, particularly here in America, let's be honest, we are not persecuted like the early Christian communities in Luke's world, or like those suffering persecution as I preach in North Korea, Afghanistan, Somalia, Libya, Pakistan, Iran, Nigeria, India, and so on. Lord, have mercy. For us, the more immediate threat is from those who distort the good news of the gospel in their words and deeds. And I don't necessarily mean false teaching. Of course, false teaching is something we must be careful to watch out for and guard our hearts and minds against. What I have in mind is Christian conformity to the trend of the moment without introducing into it anything specifically Christian or convictions that are more determined by our social location and not by faith in God's revelation. 
convictions that lack the uniqueness which ought to be the expression of our faith. The more immediate threats are the habits and the very practices that make up so much of our lives that justify our theological positions that we have adopted on grounds that are absolutely not Christian. The more immediate threat is the spiritual naivety of Christians who who gain great confidence and delight from the cultural rituals and rites, R-I-G-H-T-S, that I and we participate in more than the sacramental rites, R-I-T-E-S, of the body of Christ intended for our life together, where the I becomes part of the body of we, the community of Christ, the church. The more immediate threat is Christian conversion to the spirit of power, American Christianity. The equation of America with all its common goods with Christianity. You see, the threat is not out there. It's within. Our temptation is to exchange the boundless goodness of God for the common goods intended to direct us to God. For some of us, the biggest temptation we face is believing that our alignment with the power structures of the day represented in a particular party or government or issue or person is evidence of true Christian faith. There's anxiety right now in this room based on what you read when you woke up and went online and what you saw in the headlines. This is the here and now. Christian faith is not dependent on a particular party a particular person, or an issue to uphold. Remember the words of Jesus in verse 9. Do not be frightened. Don't panic. In verse 12, Jesus says, But before all this, they will seize you and persecute you. They will hand you over to the synagogues and put you in prison. And you will be brought before kings and governors, and all on account of my name. Based on the ever-increasing division and polarization and isolation in our country and unfortunately in our church, broadly speaking, do you think it is more likely that our family members, that our friends and co-workers, that our neighbors are more willing to persecute us because of our faith in Christ or because of our civic engagement and political affiliations? When tragedy strikes... Where do your hearts and minds turn to? Military, political, economic might to help rescue us? The hope that we might escape? That isn't what sustained the followers of Jesus when Jerusalem and the temple was laid to waste. Again, the threat is not out there. It's within For some of us, the biggest temptation we face is believing that personal safety is evidence of true Christian faith. For some of us, the biggest temptation we face is believing that financial prosperity is evidence of true Christian faith. 
In the same way, God's people believe that as long as the temple held, they would be a strong nation. They would be secure. They would be okay. We, too, are prone to associate at best or expect at worst safety and comfort and security and wealth and health and strength as evidence of God's presence or absence with us. Do we expect that God is with us because we live in a country that is wealthy and democratic? Maybe too much. It is a false hope. It is a false love. It is a false gospel. Jesus presents a radically different understanding of faith. Jesus calls his followers then and now to be the church, to be the body of Christ, a community of witnesses known for their love and for their unity in a world that is marked by discord and dissension and polarization and isolation and division. Jesus calls his followers then and now to be the church brought to life in and by the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. It becomes clear that Luke is writing to remind Christian communities in all times, yes, even in our time today, of Jesus' invitation to hope and faithfulness in times of fear and doubt and despair. Jesus doesn't offer us an escape route from suffering in a world full of it. Rather, he calls us to patience. He calls us to endurance. He calls us to faithfulness. He calls us to love in the midst of it all. Nor does he offer us a false hope in the power structures and their representative officials or any institution for that matter. Jesus offers us faithful endurance and a courageous trust in himself the one who is resurrection, the one who is life, who promises to endure with us. Jesus says, do not worry. I am with you. I am near. I will provide for you. You are in my care. Nothing will be lost. Remain faithful. Stay with it. You will not be sorry. You will be saved. Amen? What we discover in this passage is an everlasting wonder and beauty. God in flesh who dwells among us. A temple, a temple that the iron of Rome nor any other power or institution can destroy. Jesus Christ himself who promises life. Next week, both in our gospel reading And in the chronology of Jesus' life, Jesus will lay down his life for the whole world at Golgotha. Like the temple Jesus said would be torn down, Jesus will be torn down as well. And I wonder, it's I mean, I, I, I really wonder what Jesus was thinking as he sat there with his followers overlooking Jerusalem, the people and the place that he loved so much. And as he spoke about his destruction, destruction, knowing good and well that he too, in a matter of 14 days, would be handed over to destruction. Jesus knew what his followers needed to hear. 
And in this moment, they didn't need a sign. They didn't need a timetable. They needed an invitation to live. An invitation to be comforted, to remain faithful, an invitation to endure. And he wouldn't have given it if he didn't believe that they could enact it. And this invitation was not just for them. It was for you and I. In fact, it's for the whole world. And Jesus was about to show them and the world how it is all possible. Through his death and resurrection of his body, Jesus demonstrates to us in the whole world the way his promises endure. The temple was the place where God and humanity overlap, a place where God's people could encounter the presence of God, preparing them to become that holy presence on earth. This is what God desires for us. Sisters, brothers, do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit? who is in you, whom you have received from God. You are not your own. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit.